Welcome back. Miller and Condon, Des Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO, 106.3 FM. Uh, Governor Kim Reynolds, if you missed it, uh, she has post pushed back yes uh her press conference she'll join us at the she'll begin at the bottom of the hour so we will pick up her press conference uh at 11 30 thank you to zubin mehente from espn being flexible as he switched spots with the gov and zubin from espn he joins us zubin trenton ken how are you Good guys, what's going on? Well, good to talk with you, Zubin. And I guess that when, uh, that uh, when the Monday night football schedule came out, and I'm guessing you guys had an advanced look at it, um, but there had to be a lot of happy people in ESPN, Zubin. Uh, this schedule that you guys were handed this year, I think it's at least on paper the best potentially Monday night football schedule we've seen in some time. It's loaded. Yeah, I remember, I think the day it came out that Thursday, I think we had gotten a sneak peek at it at about 2 or 3 in the afternoon. Now, I was not on that email team. <laughs> 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 they got to look at it 2 or 3. Um, and then, as, uh, as a lot of people know, most teams throughout their schedule about 7.30 Eastern on their social media, and then NFL Network and ESPN had specials at 8. So if you were truly ravenous, I know, Ken, you're a big fan, it's easy to kind of put things together once everything comes out at 7.30. But for a lot of people, uh, it's just easier to sit there and watch it once on TV instead of scrolling through 32 social media feeds. Uh, obviously, things did leak. But, yes, I would agree. I mean, I mean, look, I mean, opponents winning percentage in last year to this year is a really faulty notion in the NFL just because we know how much parity there is uh, in the league. So when you kind of look at any old schedule, you're, you're assuming the Houston Texans and Kansas City Chiefs are going to be great on opening night on NBC, but... As we've seen over the years, anytime you do that, you really say to yourself, there's a decent chance one of these teams, probably Houston in this case, mm-hmm. uh, is not going to live up to expectations or is going to backtrack. So the schedule does look great if you take into account um, last year's standings and just the notion of things like, let's say, getting Joe Burrow late in the season. It might be a train wreck to get Joe Burrow early um, on Monday Night Football, even though he's a fascinating prospect to watch. But Maybe he'll, you know, get his bearings, get his sea legs under him. And late in the season, he'll be something to watch a lot more interestingly than early on. So even some of the quote-unquote lesser teams that are on our schedule, I think we're getting them at advantageous time to maybe take a look. But I would agree, top to bottom, I don't really think there's a dud among the group. And I would agree, it's probably among the stronger schedules you've seen in a while on Monday night. Great to see, certainly, Zubin. Now the next question becomes... Who's going to be calling those games for ESPN on Monday Night Football after it was announced uh, over the weekend? Richard Deitch from The Athletic had the column and the news that Joe Testatore and Booger will not be back inside the booth, though they'll both remain with ESPN. Looks like Steve Levy Levy is at least the front runner right now, but they said they're going to do it internally. So is everybody fighting there at ESPN? Who wants that job? Hmm. You know, if I haven't been in the office uh, that much over the last month, but I would tell you, oddly, every single time I've been in the office, I've been working with Steve. So oh. uh, if indeed it is Steve, yes, Steve and I have been working together three-day shifts. We're, we're switching everybody, essentially, onto three-day shifts, minus Scott. Scott's on quite a bit during the week, and then after the Michael Jordan documentaries with the ratings for that. But everybody else, for the most part, in the sports center pool is working uh, three-day shifts. And we're just paired up with one person just to make everything consistent and to keep everybody on a consistent schedule and to make sure you know where you're going to be three weeks out. Because for a situation like this, I'm a guy that's single, doesn't have kids, so I can kind of be available when needed. 
But for a lot of people that have a family, they're basically saying, look, we need you on these three days. And then they're telling us they need, you know, Steve and I back on the 24th and 25th of May. So if you do have plans, there's homeschooling, telehealth, all these things going on. You can have plenty of advance notice when you need to be in. And for the majority of the time, you actually won't be in. So I've been working with Steve a lot lately. And he's just one of those guys where I'll tell you what, you know, people associate him with the NFL. And he's one of those guys where um, he loves the NFL. He's been covering the NHL for 25 years. He and Barry's been doing Sports Center Stanley Cup final. We used to have the NHL TV rights. He was a big part of that alongside Gary Thorne, Bill Clement, some of these old names that I'm sure you can't remember. Indeed. Um, but he loves, loves the NFL. And I'll give you a quick funny story. You guys love college football. You know, Steve's been calling the number three college football game for quite some time behind Chris Fowler and then either Sean McDonough or Joe Tessitore, depending on what the situation was. He had called, you guys might not remember this, he had actually called the first Friday night package on ESPN mm. many years ago when the high schools complained that, you know, don't please, don't play on Friday right. night. And obviously now even the big conferences like Big Ten have acquiesced and did not acquiesce, excuse me, and are playing on Friday nights. But he told me back in the old days, he had the uh, package Friday night. He worked with Rod Gilmore. And not a lot of schools wanted to play on Friday night to respect the high schools. But Fresno State under Pat Hill said, We'll play. We'll take the exposure. So he jokingly told me he felt like it was a Fresno package. Like every week it would be there because so many other schools were respecting the high schools and Fresno wanted the attention. He moved on from that package of Rod Gilmore to the uh, noon ESPN package after college game day, and he did that for a couple of years. Then he went back to the studio. So he had a lot of college football experience, even though people know him for the NHL. And then what ended up happening was he was doing the Bahamas Bowl, and he always likes to joke he's the unofficial official voice of the Bahamas. Yep, game, it's right? true. Go down there, call the game, no big deal. One day he was calling the game on Christmas Eve day, and it's just another game. It's probably a wild ending, but fun. And John Skipper, who was then the president of ESPN, had broken his foot or something like that, and he was incapacitated like at his house, Christmas Eve day, nothing to do, turns on the TV, football's on. Levy's calling the game, <laughs> and Levy told me, he goes, uh, Skipper was like, uh, send some notes around after watching the game. He had nothing else to do. And he said, that Levy guy, he's uh, pretty good. He's pretty good. Let's, <laughs> let's keep an eye on him. And so it was just, it, he tells me, and he tells a lot of younger broadcasters that he speaks to, it's a good lesson. You never, ever know who's watching anything. So just be a pro all the time, every radio shift, every TV shift for any younger people out there, because while Steve did the Big Ten package and the Friday night and the hockey, and he's been face of Sports Center for 25 years, it was that one game in many ways that John Skipper was watching that said, you know, we really like this guy. He's got a ton of ability, a ton of confidence. So it's just one of those small stories where you never know what it is, but uh, that one particular game may have really put him right on the path, in addition to all the stuff he's done for 25 years. But it's a good lesson, Steve said, and I, and I agree. Just always give 100% because you never know who's listening to KXNO and you never know who's watching me on KCCI or 5 or 8 or whatever it is. It's always just be a pro and you never know what could happen. Hmm. Zubin, uh, Lewis Riddick is a name uh, that that I think is, you know, he's one of the most, for my in my opinion, most valuable assets uh, that ESPN has. You know, I was a big Gruden fan uh, when he was there. Uh, I like McShay. I, I, I do. Uh, um, they, they, they form a great pair, him and Mel. But Lou Riddick is Lewis Riddick is a guy that I'm worried he's going to go back into a front office gig or maybe a coaching job. I think you have to do what you can to make him happy. Do you see this him as a guy that would 
relish the role of um, of analyst on a Monday night booth, or is he kind of you know the magazine show type thing? Does he want to, in your opinion, or from what you know of him, would he take that role if offered? So last year, I want to say for the second Monday night game, it was him, Greasy, and Riddick. So I'm him meeting Steve. So uh, last year there was a for the second Monday night game that was the booth. It was Steve Levy, Lou Riddick, and Brian Greasy. And Brian Greasy is generally Steve's college partner. So they obviously had a lot of chemistry between Steve and Brian because they had done so many college games before. And and one thing you got to mention the one game that uh, Steve and Brian did last year that got a tremendous amount of attention. They called the game where Tua got hurt, and mm-hmm. that caused a lot of change in the college football season, as we know. And they did a great job of just enunciating in the moment, you know, 35-7, I think, when Tua got hurt. You know, why is he in there? Right. And both of those guys had watched enough football, Brian being an NFL quarterback, and Steve watching the league for, you know, 30, 40 years, you know, comparing it to something like Bo Jackson, why people are going to make that comparison and why it's apt, why it might not be accurate. So those two guys certainly have a kinship uh, already for many years. Actually, for a couple, Steve was actually the TV voice of the Denver Broncos in the preseason, and Greasy's aligned with the Broncos, too. So they've had a good relationship. But Riddick fit right in there into that third-man booth. I think he did a great job. I think the thing with Lou that a lot of people don't realize is that he called some college games last year uh, as well. He played at the University of Pittsburgh. If you ever see him on SportsCenter, there's usually like a Pittsburgh helmet uh, behind him. Uh, he had an interception for the Browns in their wild card playoff game in 1994. Hmm. Uh, I think if you watch the segments of him, you'll see like the ball. He actually has the ball from that and the date of it back there. So I think he would be great in the booth. I think he'd be great in the studio. Yeah, he's a great talent evaluator, um, but he can do the college game. He can do the pro game. And I think the thing that really helps him, or a guy like Mike Mayock when he was in TV, um, or Riddick, or front office guys is, not due to the explosion of fantasy football, because everybody kind of knows it's still just fantasy football, but more than ever, people want to understand roster construction. You know, whether it's the NBA and they want to figure out how Daryl Morey can put together all of these analytics and go from a guy that's really not a basketball guy, he's a numbers guy, and he put together a great roster. People are interested in the construction of the 53 or the 26 in baseball or whatever it is. And I think Lou would give an interesting insight on how you build a team. Because of fantasy football and because of all the stats we have now, I think people are more interested than ever in how you find undrafted free agents. What does it mean at the bottom of the draft? What's the evaluation like at the top of the draft? And Lou can bring that, or Maury can bring that in a different way in the NBA. I think for a very long time, it was just evaluating players based on talent, hoarding talent, getting the right amount of talent. But I think as we've seen, there's an art and a science to building a team. And now that the fans and the media like you and I and your listeners have so much more information, I think it's just fascinating, Ken. I mean, if you just spend one day with the Winnipeg Jets and they help you understand how they put together the game day roster, what goes on during morning skate, how are we dealing with our minor league affiliates, how are we scouting for two or three years in advance, my guess is you would eat it up. Yeah. your team and you're getting the inside scoop on how they're making these critical decisions that are going to really affect you on a night in and night out basis when you're watching your team. And I think Lou will have the ability to do that to the viewer because there's not a lot of guys in analysis. Most guys, let's be honest, are just former players. This guy's a former player and a former exec. 
And now that we want to know about both layers, I think he'd be great. I, I do too. Uh, we'll get to the last dance in a second. A little breaking news for Hawkeye fans out there. Jordan Bohannon gets a fifth year. Jack Nungy a sixth year. So the medical hardship waivers have come in in their favor. Uh, that's just been announced by the University of Iowa. Zubin, uh, let's get into basketball then. Though we're not going to talk Iowa basketball with you, let's talk about the last dance. It just it feels like it gets better and better every single mm. week. I, I've been already throwing ideas at Ken. Let's extend this thing out. I want to see the reactions to the reactions of Michael Jordan laughing at Gary Payton, laughing at the other ones, and and we're going to come to the conclusion this Sunday. But boy, uh, episode seven and eight, it was excellent. Your thoughts and your takeaways after watching it Sunday night. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those things where, for me, you really look at what's happening here, and I just, week after week after week, the biggest takeaway I come away with is, like, um, when did that happen? I just thought this era was chronicled so well. Every once in a while, you just hear things, and you're like, and I know today we live in social media, so, like, you just said with your Hawkeye story there, you just immediately come to the table and are able to break that out. And then you could go in any direction to talk about the return of Bohannon, wherever you wanted to go. You know, I mean, just put yourself back in 1998 if we're sitting here on the radio and there was some breaking news out of the Chicago Bulls like there was uh, for the Hawkeyes you just mentioned a moment ago. We, we wouldn't have it. The guy would be at the Burno Center, which is the training facility or the TV station or the radio station or the newspaper would just have the reporter there, and then they'd either drive back to the station, or if you were really fancy and had a car phone in 1998, you could call back to the radio station and say, hey, George just said this. The amount of news that was flowing was just far less, but at the same token, I think there was far less being covered, so you would think that some of this news would stick. But every time I watch this, I say to myself, I I certainly remember this, I remember this game, I remember this moment, but I don't remember this particular story. And I think a lot of it comes down to, um, I think there's a lot of fans out there that don't even really remember what happened between Helms and Dan. You know, that was something that a lot of people were kind of surprised by. They may have heard about the Republican five shoes to that same as line, but they may not really know the story behind that. And the biggest thing is, you know, whether it's a former Hawkeye like DJ Armstrong, you know, I think people are, you know, this is obviously taped in advance, but I think when people sat down to do this, realizing when this was going to air, whether it's now or whether the original date was in June. I think I mentioned this to you a couple of weeks ago. I think most people sat down thinking to themselves, no matter what comes out, even though Michael Jordan controls this pretty much from start to finish, uh, in terms of what gets in, what doesn't, people realize that this documentary, you know, Sam Smith wrote the Jordan rules and there's great stuff with that. This documentary is going to be the record of what happened for one of the greatest stretches mm-hmm. in NBA history. So if you're not honest, raw, and visceral here, you're probably never going to get another stage for a lot of these ancillary people to be even on a special with Michael Jordan said something. You haven't heard of some of these guys in so long. I think so many of these people realize this is going to be the official, for better or for worse, record of what happened during this amazing moment in NBA history. And if you know you're going to be on that sort of stage, you might as well just let it out. The honesty and candor from this series to me hasn't been surprising, but it's been pretty unique in a world and now which we live of where people have to be super careful of what they say and what they do. It almost felt like when the uh, director said action, so to speak, to have people talk, it almost feels like people let their guard down and uh, acted in a way that you generally don't see today from a lot of famous people 
or celebrities that have too much on the line to say too much. Yeah, Zubin, it's been uh, it's been absolutely tremendous. I'm going to miss it like crazy when it ends. Although, you know, I've I've seen uh, we saw this past weekend for the first time some of the promo clips for the uh, the three that we've got coming up, and I wasn't sure that I would get into the Bruce Lee thing. But who am I kidding? Uh, I'm going to be into it. And of course, the Sammy McGuire and the Lance Armstrong uh, piece will start things off, and it'll do so on Sunday of Memorial Day weekend. So you're just rolling right into these things. I think it's terrific uh, that we've got that content, Zubin. I watched uh, I. Saturday, I go back to Saturday. I watched the UFC from Jacksonville. I've never considered myself the biggest, you know, UFC guy, but that was a heck of an undercard, and I believe they threw it to you at the uh, at the conclusion of it about nine fifteen central, uh, back at the uh, uh, at the Sports Center desk. Um, I'm assuming that there was a lot of people that tuned in um, just because of the curiosity factor of nothing else. Uh, hats off for ESPN for putting that show on. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that's going to come from me, yeah, Steve and I did SportsCenter right after the prelim card, and then we right, right into the championship bout. You might remember the day before, the whole thing was thrown in chaos when one of the fighters, Roberto Sousa, right. had come down with coronavirus. What's that going to do? And then obviously put a pall over the proceedings on Friday, and then Steve and I handled the card on Saturday. But I think the one thing to take away from UFC 249, and this is just a small extrapolation moving forward, I think I saw Dan Wetzel of Yahoo, I'm a big fan of, write this on Saturday night, and I, I couldn't agree more after watching the card and then doing the program afterwards, and that is to say that the four major professional sports, you know, they're publicly saying they're going to be guided by science and we'll see what happens, but I bet you Manfred, Goodell, Bettman, and Silver, whether they will admit it or not, looked at UFC and said, at some point during our season, what happened to UFC on Friday, Saturday is going to happen to us. Mm -hmm. Somebody is going to get sick, and then there is going to be a huge amount of pressure to shut everything down. Dr. Fauci said the other day, if the NFL were to continue, players should be tested on Saturday and Sunday. But what happened at UFC 249 with someone coming down with the coronavirus and then the UFC saying, nope, the show is going on. We are not shutting down. We are quarantining this guy for his own safety putting him away from other people to protect their safety. We have administered tests. He's alone. The show must go on. And I think those other four commissioners said there's going to be almost inevitably a point where this is going to happen to us. And now the template and the precedent has been set that when a major sports event happens and one person contracts it, and then maybe there's some contact tracing, a couple of his corner guys got it too. If we can isolate those guys, the show can go on and we can continue with the event they didn't shut it down. If UFC shut it down, I don't think they would have, because Dana White was so adamant and he's so aligned with Trump, things must continue. Those commissioners looked at it and said, if we encounter a problem that UFC has, and we're probably going to, because they're dealing with 23, 24 fighters, we're dealing with 53 guys on each sideline or 26 in each dugout, the numbers say we're going to get affected at some point. They gave us the roadmap to have a guy test positive and then still have the event go on. I think those commissioners are looking at that and saying, if he can do it, we can do it too. It's a small thing in the moment, but I bet you they're filing it away and saying, when we come to this problem, we're going to barrel right through it because the UFC did it, and we've got more resources than they do. So I think it's a very interesting point just to file away for the future. Card was successful, but the way that card might spur how other sports react, I think it's critical. 
Zubin, uh, we'll get you out on this. Just a couple minutes left. Zubin Mahente from ESPN. I think one of ESPN's best hires as of late is bringing in Jeff Passan on baseball. He's been incredible. He has been at the forefront of all the stories here. And his latest today talking about the ugliness that is going to be brewing this week between the Major League Players Association and the owners in baseball. Not a good time for it, but... Everybody's got their hand out. Everybody wants to figure out the particulars. No salary cap, of course, in Major League Baseball. I don't think this is going to be a good look for Major League Baseball as a whole this week. I agree. The players are in a bad spot here because the owners essentially said 82 games, universal designated hitter, expanded playoff field. The average fan looks at that and says, okay, we're ready to go. Mm -hmm. All the particulars are in place. And then the players are going to step in and say, "Ah, actually, (laughs) we have to talk about compensation. And the players have said, to your point, there is no salary cap, but if you tie their salary to revenue, because they want to do a 50-50 split now with the owners and the players, Tony Clark, the MLB executive director, has essentially said that if you tie their salary to revenue, depending on what revenue is with no fans at the beginning, that's essentially a salary cap because you're not allowing the players to make market value. You're allowing the players to make a certain percentage of what revenue is. That's a bad argument. And the players essentially said, look, um, if there's no season, we get the extra year of service time, but there's going to be a season, so the service time question is out the window. They say they had agreed in March to a deal, and they want to stand by it. So I agree with you. Even though the players have a very good argument that they agreed to a deal and now they're being forced into something that they see as a version of the salary cap, I do not think the public is going to be on their side, especially if baseball says we're ready to go, we're ready to do this. And Scott Boris is telling the players to reject this deal. He might be the most greedy guy in all of baseball. Not a good look at the moment um, because I think right now everybody looks like baseball says they're ready to go. And if the players are willing to put a stop to it because of money, then I think it's going to be a really bad optic look. But they are digging their heels in. The players are absolutely not going to surrender here. It's a bad PR look, but if they want their money, this is probably the way they're going to have to do it. Zubin Mahente from ESPN. Zubin, thank you. Great segment, as uh, we always have with you every single week. Uh, We will do so again next week. Thank you, Zubin. Stay safe, guys. Thanks. Yep, you do the same. Zubin Mahente uh, from ESPN. Take a time out. We come back. Well, before we do that, Trent, let's do this. KXNO and iHeart want to help you with your bills. Text the keyword SMILE to 200-200 right now. It's your chance to win a grand. SMILE to 200-200. You'll get a confirmation text and info. Standard data and message rates apply in this nationwide contest. Kim Reynolds press conference scheduled next when we continue. 1460 KXNO106 and their families. Brian Miller and Condon, 1460 KXNO 106.3 FM. Here's the governor of the state of Iowa. I'm still reviewing some information with the Department of Public Health and my team today and will be announcing the new changes tomorrow. I know that Iowans and businesses are eager to know what's next, but as I've said all along, these decisions must be made carefully and driven by data, and I look forward to providing that update tomorrow. If you're following Iowa's numbers on the COVID-19 dashboard, you'll have noticed an uptick in positive cases reported today. I want to provide an important clarifying point about this total. Of today's 539 new positive cases reported, 319 were among Iowans who were tested in Nebraska between April 28th and 30th tied to a processing plant. They were notified of the results shortly after being tested, but the reporting back to the state of Iowa was delayed. 
but we do have, so those are included in today's case counts. If there is one thing that COVID-19 has shown us, it's the little things that we likely took for granted that made our life seem normal, like taking the family out for dinner, having the grandkids over for a sleepover, or just seeing them off to school, going to church on Sunday, or being able to head to work in the morning. And while so much has changed in a short period of time, it's hard to believe it's just been two months, working together, Iowans will get life back to normal. One of the greatest scientists, Marie Curie, once said, and I quote, nothing in life is to be feared. It's only to be understood. Now is the time to understand more so we may fear less. Our goal from the beginning has, begin, has been to protect the health of Iowans, flatten the curve, do everything we could through our mitigation efforts to manage our health care resources so that we didn't overwhelm our health care systems. And we've done that. Today, we have 699 vents available and 451 ICU beds. Surge plans are in place and our health care systems are ready. Because of meeting that, we're able to safely and responsibly open our state. Testing is happening across all of Iowa. In fact, since March, we've increased our testing and processing capacity at the State Hygienic Lab over 800%. We've gone from 300 a day, processing 300 a day, to 1,300 a day, to um, 3,800 a day. We've deployed strike teams to conduct surveillance testing in communities where virus activity is increasing. And by the end of the week, we'll have opened eight test sites. The newest will open Saturday in Storm Lake. From the state hygienic lab to test Iowa to individual hospitals and clinics to our long-term care manufacturing and community Iowa test sites and soon-to-be point-of-care testing, our state has mobilized with multiple partners and options to significantly expand testing, scale case investigation, all which enables us to track virus activity across the state and deploy targeted strate um, strategies to contain and manage it. For now, we must learn to adjust life and business accordingly so that we can live, work, and play the way that we want, while continuing to prioritize the health of Iowans and to get our economy back on track. Two weeks ago, I announced that Iowa would begin to loosen some restrictions in 77 counties where virus activity was sporadic, low, or non-existent. On May 1st, restaurants, fitness centers, and retail stores were allowed to reopen in those counties. At 50% of their normal capa operating capacity and according to specific requirements from the Department of Public Health designed to, again, mitigate um, the spread of the virus. And what we've seen since May 1st, since the May 1st changes became effective, is a very cautious approach from both businesses and churches as they carefully considered how, to, how best to reopen. Many are taking extra time to ensure that they are ready to safely serve their customers and communities, and I respect those decisions. Lifting restrictions is not a mandate that businesses must reopen, but for those that are ready, it's an opportunity to get back to business, bring employees back to work, and get Iowa's economy moving ahead. We're taking a phased approach that allows us to start small, to learn how to adapt operations according to, according to public health guidance, and to build our consumer confidence. Each business will determine what's right for them.
Today, I've invited Ellen Walsh Rosman, owner of Farm Table and Milk and Honey a Restaurant in Harlem, Harlan, and uh, a recipe of small business relief and a recipient, excuse me, Ellen, of the Small Business Relief Grant from the state to share her story about how COVID changed how she does business, what she's learned from the process, and how she plans to come back. So, hi, Ellen. It's good to see you, and we'll turn it over to you. Hello, Governor Reynolds. It's good to see you as well. Thank you for inviting me to speak today. Um, I wear many hats in the food system. The first hat I wear is I'm a farmer, and I also own a uh, farm-to-table restaurant in Harlan, and I own um, and manage one of the uh, largest remaining food hubs in the state. Um, so I, I'm definitely seeing the impacts of COVID on the food systems from all sorts of different angles. Um, just a little bit about our, our business. So our food home uh, farm table procurement and delivery, we work with uh, about 40 different growers across the state of Iowa and distribute and market and aggregate their goods to uh, restaurants, grocery stores, food service institutions like schools. And um, now more than ever, food hubs and local food seems to be relevant and be at the center stage. And uh, we're responding to that. Um, uh, we are, we've had to um, increase our staff to respond to this demand, um, which the Small Business Recovery Grant um, helped us do. And then we, we've also um, pivoted our business pretty quickly. Um, now local food helps um, really get the food to folks um, direct from the farmer. So we're not having to deal through many distribution channels. Um, we have seen how essential food service and how small business owners, restaurants and farmers are like are pivoting, like I said, and getting food safely to uh, their customers. Um, people are innovative and um, other business owners and organizations like myself have pivoted their business models overnight, offering curbside pickups, drive-through farmers markets, like our partners at the Iowa Food Hub, Field the Family, North Iowa Fresh, Prudent Produce, and the Iowa Food Co-op. They're all doing these things to respond to consumer demand. The Small Business Development Grant, Recovery Grant, will help us with the day-to-day -day operations, um, like I mentioned, and increase the additional staff that we've had to um, respond appropriately. We can also continue to pay our local farmers that we work with and make, it, um, make sure we're paying them quicker to um, help them with their livelihoods. Um, and I also own a restaurant, like I mentioned, called Milk and Honey on the Square. And um, we have a very small staff, about six employees. And we were able to pivot. It was very scary at first when we closed because we didn't know what the future would look like. We still don't have a clear picture on what that would look like. But we pivoted pretty quickly, um, offering online ordering, contactless payments. Um, our sales are significantly down, which the Small Business Recovery Grant is helping um, make up for. Um, and our employees have had to make big sacrifices um, for their families. But uh, getting this grant will help us pivot and uh, alleviate some of the risks that we're taking to keep our doors open and keep serving the public and doing it safely. So we haven't completely opened our restaurant because we have a very small restaurant. We see about 49 people. Um, so we just couldn't find a way to make that work. 
Um, and we have a very small staff, like I mentioned, of six people, and we don't really want any of them to get sick, else we'll have to completely shut down the restaurant. Um, I'm, like I said, I'm very uh, grateful for um, all the support that the governor and the IEDA has given to small businesses during this time, because we do make up a large portion of small uh, uh, the revenue for our state, mm -hmm. and um, a lot of businesses aren't unfortunately going to probably be making it through this if they weren't able to pivot and um, without a, a grant to help them alleviate that risk. Um, I, I do want to say that the reality, though, is um, we still need to continue to support small businesses. Um, they are still struggling. It's not over. So there's many things that we can do to make that happen. So public support, like uh, the state of Iowa has given to small businesses at this time, needs to continue. Um, and uh, uh, consumers need to continue to spending their money locally and also supporting small farms. So look for other food hubs across the state and farmers markets. There's a lot of drive-through farmers markets that are happening. People are being very innovative and how to get um, food to folks. And um, we also need systematic change. This change can be by voting three times with your fork, uh, three times a day with your fork. Um, and you can, you can dictate what kind of food system you wanna have. Um, and I just wanna thank you again for um, the grants. It really, um, when I got word that we got it, it really gave um, us hope and felt like somebody believed in us and it really validated all the sweat equity that we have put into our business um, in, the, in the last six years, as well as all the sweat equity that we're putting into our business now. And um, I know I'm not the only one that feels this way, but we really do appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Ellen. And I have so enjoyed watching you with your business. You are tenacious, uh, innovative, and determined. And so I'm not surprised at how you've really adapted and moved through this really difficult time uh, with COVID-19. So thanks for sharing your story today. Um, there's so many small business owners across Iowa that are getting ready to take these first steps. I love the drive through farmer's market. That's very innovative and cool, too, and just what you're doing to really continue to work with the farmers. Uh, to get their um, products to market. So thank you for that. I wish you the best of luck. And I look forward to getting back uh, together with you the next time I'm down in Harlan. So keep up the good work and, and uh, we'll continue to reach out and make sure that we're partnering together with small businesses across the state as we move through this really difficult time. But thanks for sharing your story today. Thanks. Bye-bye. So getting life and uh, businesses back to normal is important for many reasons, reasons, not at least of which is ensuring the well-being of Iowans. It's important that we don't lose sight of the unintended consequences that our response to COVID-19 has had. Iowans have filed more than 206,000 unemployment claims and more than 147,000 federal pandemic unemployment claims. According to the American Farm Bureau Federation, Chapter 12 Family Farm Bankruptcy
bankruptcies for the 12-month period ending in March totaled 627 filings nationally. That's a 23% increase from the previous 12 months. 37 of those bankruptcies were in were Iowa farm families. The steps that we've taken to protect the health of our state and Iowans has had a real impact on Iowans and families. Um, Iowans like Dave Ferris. Dave is the owner of Sneaky's Chicken in Sioux City at the landmark restaurant he started with his brother in May of uh, 1979. Under normal circumstances, they would be making plans to celebrate their 41st anniversary next week. Instead, they are seriously evaluating their ability to continue to keep their doors open. Mr. Ferris stated, while I'll always support public health first and foremost, the COVID-19 pandemic has been devastating for our business. Before the pandemic, I was making plans to transition my life's work to my daughter. Now the likelihood of being able to pass on um, to pass on our family legacy is looking grimmer and grimmer every day. We're closed for our dining and catering operations. It's stories like Dave's. Um, stories like Dave's are a reality in communities across our state. Uh, there, there are Iowans who are struggling. Being out of work has a tremendous impact on Iowa families. Due to increased unemployment, applications for food and cash assistance have also increased, and family have families have lost their health insurance where they've been laid off from their jobs. For those who already struggle with mental illness and addiction, these events can trigger increased anxiety and depression or result in a relapse. Just as we are doing our part to protect ourselves and others from the virus, we also must protect the mental health and well-being of all Iowans. Today, I've asked uh, Director Flynn from Homeland Security to provide an update on the crisis counseling funding Iowa recently received. Joyce. Thank you, Governor. I'm pleased to share that today the required application to the Federal Emergency Management Agency's regional office in Kansas City for approval of the Crisis Counseling Assistance and Training Program will be submitted. The Governor's request for activation of the Crisis Counseling Program was approved April 30th. Like many disaster recovery programs, funding is awarded through the Iowa Department of Homeland and Security and Emergency Management. For this program, Director Kelly Garcia and her team at the Department of Human Services developed the application for review and will contract with five providers from across the state to deliver the services. Program services are provided at no cost to Iowans. Based on the specifics of this event, DHS has developed a plan for statewide virtual outreach of services with a focus on special populations. Special populations include agriculture and rural issues, children and families, workforce, whether unemployed, essential or non-essential, older adults, persons with developmental disabilities, domestic violence, homelessness, and military families and veterans. The Crisis Counseling Assistance and Training Program consists of services focused on preventing or mitigating the adverse repercussions of a disaster. The program goal is achieved with a public health approach. Beginning with the most severely affected groups and moving outward, the program seeks to serve a large portion of the population affected by the disaster. 
The virtual program counseling services will be provided statewide and will include supportive virtual counseling, counseling, psychoeducation, development of coping skills, and linkage to appropriate resources while assessing and referring families to, of the community to services in their community. They may need intensive mental health and substance use treatment services, and they will be linked to those appropriate community resources. Iowa's application requests approval of both an immediate services program and a regular services program. The immediate services program provides funding not to exceed 60 days from the date of the declaration, and the regular services program, if approved, will continue those services for a period not to exceed nine months. With program approval, Iowans will have ready access to a variety of mental health services designed to lessen the impact of the COVID pandemic. In closing, I want to thank the folks at my department, Homeland Security Emergency Management Team, state and federal partners, and all local emergency management coordinators who are responding to this event and continuing to recovery from disaster events that have impacted the state in the recent years. Thank you, Governor. Thank you, Joyce, and I want to thank you and your team for doing so much to serve Iowans at this time. Your work is critical to our response, and I'm extremely uh, grateful. Before we close, I've also asked Sarah Reister to provide a brief update regarding our plan to use rem remdesivir for COVID-19 um, patients. Sarah. Thank you, Governor, and good morning. As we respond to the COVID-19 pandemic, we are all working to identify new tools to combat the spread and the severity of the disease. As many of you may know, the U.S. Federal, uh, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, has issued an emergency use authorization for the investigational antiviral drug remdesivir for the treatment of COVID-19. This authorization allows the medicine to now be distributed in the United States. It was previously only able to be used in clinical trials and for other investigational research. The medicine can be used for both adults and children hospitalized with severe COVID-19 illness. It has been shown in clinical trials to shorten recovery time for some patients. At this time, Iowa has received 400 vials of remdesivir. Patients will require either six or 11 vials for treatment depending on their needs. The distribution to Iowa is part of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services' latest effort to provide 14,400 vials of the medicine to state health departments. The 400 vials provided to Iowa will be distributed by the State Hygienic Laboratory according to the number of hospitalized patients in an area, the number of patients in an intensive care unit in an area, the trends in those numbers over the last month, the trends in disease activity, including new cases over the past two weeks, and the available resources, including equipment and personnel needed to appropriately manage these patients and this medication and their potential side effects. We are consulting with infectious disease clinicians, pharmacists, and hospitals across the state in establishing these criteria as we work to quickly distribute the medicine. We will continue to share lessons learned and insights as we move forward with managing this medication and any additional resources we might receive in Iowa. Healthcare providers and patients receiving the information or the medication will get detailed fact sheets from the FDA about the medicine so they know how to administer it and what to expect.
The drug must be administered intravenously by healthcare providers to hospitalized patients with severe disease. Severe disease is defined as patients with low blood oxygen levels or those who need oxygen therapy or more intensive breathing support such as a mechanical ventilator. The emergency use authorization was issued to Gilead Sciences, which had been doing work with investigational medicine and who has agreed to provide it at no cost for distribution to state health departments. In determining whether to issue the emergency use authorization, the FDA indicated it evaluated the available evidence and that it carefully balanced any known or potential risks with the potential benefits of making this medication available to patients during the pandemic. All right, that's going to do it for uh, Miller and Condon on a Tuesday. Restaurant Radio, thanks to NCMIC. Murph and Andy at 2, the Fanatics at 4. Morning Rush back tomorrow morning at 6. It's Des Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO and 106.3 FM.